So we are super lucky to be joined by um, Aurora's friend Paloma today, and um, this is a beautiful song that Aurora brought to my attention by a group called the Wayland Jennies. Um, if you don't know them, they're worth checking out. <laughs> During Lent, we are having stories of cultivating and letting go things we are, uh, new life we are finding in our lives and things we're feeling called to let go. And this morning we get to hear from Rosie Ely. Um, I'd like to start in the faith tradition, as Sarah would say, of my childhood, which was LDS or Mormon and LDS talks always start with, for those of you who don't know me. So, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rosie Ely, my wife, um, Alicia Doyle, and we have a 13-month-old destroyer named Ezra. <laughs> you used to hear him all the time, but now we take him to, uh, where do we take him? Nursery, yes, to nursery. <laughs> um, so, um, we came to Bethany about two years ago by way of a formal, former colleague and a regular Bethy, Bethany attendee. Um, that year would pose to be one of the most difficult years that we've shared together. I suffered a miscarriage in early fall of 2016. 
Um, And incredibly to me, Alicia and I actually grew stronger together in our marriage and found strength in ourselves that I, for one, did not think that I had. The Lord was with us that year in so many ways. In that difficult season, he was with us. And one of the ways he was with us was Bethany and finding Bethany before that happened. And as a side note, this is not written down, but one of the reasons that we kept coming back to Bethany, I have very strict rules about what type of music is allowed in my church. My friends know that. Sorry. Very judgy, apparently. Um, But the very first Sunday we were here, Loose Cannon played, and I was like, sold. Um, And the musical number you just did, if I would have heard that the first time at Bethany, I would have been like, okay, we can come back. Allowed. Um, So... Just a side note. Um, as we as we went through that difficult season and started anew, um, we were able to feel the love of the Lord as we let go of um, the trials that we were facing. Fast forward, about two weeks ago, I was pumping up my eighth graders for the long testing season ahead of us. Uh, we were discussing goals and perceptions, and I told them, you know, y'all, I used to think that by this age, I would be married to a man and have five kids. And a sweet, kind eighth grader piped up, well, you failed. Um, (laughs) So after I feigned extreme offense and calmed the class down from the yelling, I let them know um, that my life has been full of change and surprise and adventure, and that's what I love. I love change, and I love adventure, and that I'm not unhappy. I do not feel like I failed, 14-year-old, um, in my life. I will tell you what I didn't tell them. I grew up and of my own volition, was a fairly devout Mormon. I served an LDS mission. I went to school in Utah, not BYU, Weber State. Um, And I was on a path that I'd set for myself as a child. Uh, Sorry. It was only when I began to let go of the vision that I'd made for my life at 14 years old that I began to truly know myself and to love myself. I let go of the five kids, the picket fence, the husband, and some aspects of my faith. I had been holding on because I was afraid of what my life would become. I was 28 years old when I came out to my family. Alicia and I have a magnificent life, a life I never expected. And the extreme stability that we have in our lives has allowed us to become a beacon to my older sister as we help her slowly, too slowly, unravel and um, let go of a marriage that is so unhealthy for her and for her family. It's funny for me to talk about letting go when I have spent every Sunday of the last year praying fervently that she would get the strength to become fearless, which is something she's not, and let go. Because I know that that birth of something new, those first steps into the dark, they're scary, but they're also magic. In the darkest seasons of my life, I have thought of Isaiah's words in chapter 54. For a small moment, I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. I have seen and felt this everlasting kindness in my life. While I have felt tempest-tossed and so alone, I have felt the mercy of the Lord in my life. My constant prayer for my family, my friends, and my special students is that they can gather the strength to get let go of those anchors they no longer need, step out onto a new field, and see what grows there. Thank you.
Thanks, Rosie. During this season, we're taking extra time in worship for song and for stillness and quiet. So we'll sing. The first song we'll sing is, Come Bring Your Burdens to God. Come Bring Your Burdens to God. Come Bring Your Burdens to God. For Jesus will never say no. As I sing that, I like to imagine, like we talked about last week, Jesus as a mother who is always willing to receive her children, always willing to receive whatever mess or chaos or burdens we might be carrying. And we'll have some time for silence, and we'll close with a Kyrie, a Latin, uh, Greek singing of Lord have mercy.
So Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Some who were present on that occasion told Jesus about the Galileans, whom Pilate had killed while they were offering sacrifices. Jesus replied, Do you think the suffering of these Galileans proves that they were more sinful than all the other Galileans? No. I tell you. But, unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. What about those 12 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were more guilty of wrongdoing than everyone else who lives in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. Jesus told this parable, a man owned a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He said to his gardener, look, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree for the past three years, and I've never found any. Cut it down. Why should it continue depleting the soil's nutrients? The gardener responded, Lord, give it one more year, and I'll dig around it and give it fertilizer. Maybe it will produce fruit next year. If not, then you can cut it down. The word of God for the people of God. The lectionary is a schedule of readings that churches all around the world of lots of different denominations follow. It gives us readings for every single week. We follow it sometimes here. And the lectionary, the benefit of it is that it exposes you over three-year cycle to a broad swath of readings from the Bible. The other benefit or challenge of the lectionary is that it gives you those passages that you might prefer to skip, like this one. This is one of those passages that when I am reading and I come to it, I think, hmm, I don't know what that's about, and I don't think I like it. But the lectionary invites us to step back and consider it. So, let's see what we find. It starts with folks hashing out the recent news. I like to imagine them over coffee and muffins, maybe. And they say to each other, did you hear about the Galileans that Pilate killed while they were at worship? And this week it might remind us of those Muslims who were killed at worship in New Zealand. And then they go on, did you hear about those folks in Jerusalem? The tower just fell down and killed 12 of them out of nowhere. No rhyme or reason, just random. This week, far from any headlines, not making anyone's news, children have been born 
only to draw a few breaths and then die. And beloved grandmothers and grandfathers have had strokes and gotten pneumonia and had awful falls. And parents have reached the end of their rope and abused their children. And oncologists have sat down with people who are impossibly young and impossibly healthy and uttered words like aggressive or inoperable. People have been careless in their driving. People have slipped and falled, fallen. People have had fluke accidents. The world is falling apart for people all of the time. And we mostly try to forget that. Because, you know, it's hard to walk around aware of the sheer scale of suffering and conscious of our mortality all of the time when we're trying to remember the four things we need from the grocery store for dinner tonight. You just can't do both. But there are moments when that awareness of our mortality breaks in. Like when the towers fell in 2001, I think we were all, for a moment, aware of our mortality. And I wonder if that's what it was like for these Galileans, facing this violence that had happened to their neighbors, and thinking of what had happened just down the road in Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus himself at this point is very close to his own death, staring his mortality in the face. And as they're eating breakfast and chewing over the recent news, they wonder, maybe this stuff happened to those people because they did something wrong. And of course we know the answer to that is no. It could happen to any of us. And yet, when something happens, the desire to find an explanation is so strong. There's got to be a reason that it happened to them, and therefore, why it won't happen to me. Why I'm going to be safe. Because the anxiety of the randomness is almost too much to face. I don't think any of us explicitly believe that people die because they are more sinful than we are. But we do look for reasons why someone else's misfortune is their fault. And therefore it won't happen to us. Kate Bowler is a professor at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina. Her work centers around the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is the idea that wealth and good fortune are blessings from God. If you're good, if you live right, then God will bless you with wealth. And if you are bad, you are doomed to credit card debt for the rest of your life. It's not really a good interpretation of the gospel. And Kate's work centers around deconstructing, understanding why people believe it, and deconstructing 
prosperity gospel. And then Kate got cancer. Stage four. She is in her 30s. She has young children. She's going to die. She wrote that when her diagnosis really began to sink in, she realized she had her own version of the prosperity gospel. She realized that deep down inside, she had believed that because she worked hard and loved her family, that something like this couldn't happen to her. That cancer only happened to people who were older or who didn't love their families as much or didn't work as hard. We find all sorts of reasons to believe it won't happen to us. Did they die because of something they did? We all secretly want the answer to be yes. But Jesus, staring death in the face himself, says no. It is not because of anything they did or didn't do. They're not dead because they were bad. And you are not alive because you are good. Things just happen. People are violent and innocent. People get caught in the middle. Random things happen. Towers fall down. And Jesus says, without hesitation, this stuff does not happen because God is keeping some kind of score. Bad things happen. They can happen to anyone, including the good people. I am really glad that Jesus is so clear about this here. Suffering is enough. We don't need a side helping of guilt to go with it. It's what he says next that's disconcerting. He says, unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die exactly as they did. Other translations put it more bluntly. Repent or you will perish. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that exactly the opposite of what he just said? They weren't bad. They didn't die because they were bad. But you better repent or you're going to die just like they did. What is he getting at here? Here's what I want to propose that he's getting at. Life is short and uncertain. We are all going to die, and mostly we don't get to choose when that's going to happen. And I wonder if that was particularly vivid for Jesus as he was coming to the end of his life. He knows life is short and uncertain. And so he wants to make sure his friends know that too. If you have something that needs to be made right. This is the time to do that. 
Otherwise, you may discover that your number is up like those Galileans or those folks in Jerusalem, and you will die unprepared, not at peace. Life is short and uncertain. If there are changes to be made, now is the time. I think that's what he's getting at. Life's short. If there are changes, we want to make them now. Repent. That word repent is so heavy. Filled with so much shame and guilt and moralism. But the Greek, metanoia, means to change our hearts and our minds. And the Hebrew, teshuva, means to turn around. To turn from death toward life. Jesus is not doubling down on the moralism here. He's not saying, if you don't change, you'll die in this life and you'll die in that life too. I think perishing is about this life, losing our par- a part of ourselves even while we are alive. Repentance is about life, a change of heart and mind so that we can turn toward life now. We are all going to die. Suffering and death are often meaningless, and there's no way to know what's going to happen. So how do you want to live? What kind of change would give you life? How do you want to turn around? I think that brings us to the second half of this passage. On first glance, the two parts of this passage are totally disconnected. Why did those people die? Repent or perish? Also, here's a fig tree. Like Luke needed a better editor here. But I think these two parts actually speak to each other beautifully. In the first half, we had a sense of urgency. Life is short. Towers fall down. In the second half, we're reminded that patience is grace. Patience is essential. There's a fig tree that's not producing figs. It's not a very figgy fig tree. And there's a landowner who's tired of it and ready to cut it down. And in the middle, there's a gardener who says, let's give it some time. Let me fertilize and maybe aerate around the roots so it's got a little more space, get a little more water. Let's give it some time. See if we can coax out some fruit. Often we read this where God is the landowner, tired of us. Jesus is the gardener interceding. And we are all very bad fig trees. But I feel like the landowner too. I know how it feels to be the fig tree. I feel like I'm not living up to who I want to be or who I should be. But I'm often the landowner, quick to condemn, ready to judge, ready to call it and be done with it. What I need is a gardener who's willing to call out life, who says, wait a minute, who stops judgment and calls forth life. 
That's what I need. A friend of mine recently told his boss that he was working too much. He was working way too much. It was hurting his health. It was hurting his spirit. It was hurting his relationships. He was really scared to talk to his boss about this. He was scared that his boss might just say, tough. That's how it is. Or, for my friend... It would be even worse if his boss said, okay, I guess you can't keep up. We'll just have to take some responsibilities away from you. But what his boss said was, okay, let's give it some time. You know there's a problem here. Let's see what you can do now that you know. And then in a few months... If we still have this issue, we'll figure it out together. But for now, let's just give it some time. For my friend, that felt like grace. He had some time. It didn't have to be settled right now. And he also knew he wasn't alone. Someone was supporting him. That's what the gardener does. The gardener holds back judgment and calls forth life. The gardener says to all the insistent, condemning voices, give it a rest. Let's take some time. See what can grow. What can we do to coax forth life? There's a beautiful tension to this passage. On the one hand, life is short. If we want change, we should change now. On the other hand, life takes time. You can't let death set the pace. Fertilize. Give change some time. Jesus and his friends wrestled with the reality of death. It will happen to all of us. And it could happen. At any time. So the question is, how do you want to live? Which is a great question. But it can create so much anxiety. I better get it figured out. Time's wasting. So Jesus balances that urgency with this reminder. That grace is a gardener who is not in a hurry. Grace is a gardener who's willing to fertilize and wait. And see who is essentially hopeful. Grace is a gardener who acts like death doesn't get the last word. This Lent, we're talking about what we want to cultivate and what we want to let go of. What do you want to let go of? Complacency? Judgment. Life is unspeakably precious. So what do you want to cultivate? How do you want to care for your life? What do you want to cultivate? 
It may involve hard choices. And there may be some mess. The best fertilizer is manure. But in the hard choices and in the mess and in the slow process of change, we have the cultivation of a life that is rich and abundant and full. What do you want to cultivate? What would a gentle, hopeful, gracious gardener cultivate in you?